So we're going to stand and read the passage today, if you'd stand with us. I'll be reading from Ephesians 3. We're back in Ephesians after two or three weeks out doing other things. Ephesians 3, I'll begin at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. In light of that last verse, in light of that last verse about the church and the glory of God throughout the, the heavens, John Piper, longtime pastor and writer, makes this rather outlandish statement. Now, this is a statement that probably no one tonight watching the Oscars out in that arena in L.A., probably no one in the corridors of power in New York City or Washington, D.C., government, media, business, entertainment, any of those corridors, probably has ever even thought about this unless they are followers of Jesus Christ and they think biblically about the world that we live in. This is the statement in light of that last verse, chapter 3, verse 10. Piper writes, he says, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution in the world. The assembly of the redeemed, the company of the saints, the children of God are more significant in world history than any other group, organization, or nation. The United States of America compares to the church of Jesus Christ like a speck of dust compares to the sun. The drama of international relations compares to the mission of the church like a kindergarten riddle compares to Hamlet or King Lear. All of the pomp of a May Day in the Red Square, the pageantry of a New Year's Day parade in Pasadena, fade into a formless gray against the splendor of the Bride of Christ. Take heed how you judge. Things are not what they seem. Now, that is an incredible statement, and maybe you've never thought about the church that way. Until reading that that, uh, statement this week, I've certainly not thought about it in the categories that Piper talks about. Now, Is this the way that you look at the church of Jesus Christ? Well, let me remind you that the New Testament says of the church that this is the bride of Christ, which tells us that it is all about romance, that it is all about a love affair, not about a religion. Not about churchianity, but it's about a love relationship with our God. It's His bride. It's His body. Now, your body is something that's, you know, part of you. It's very special to you, and so is the church. From Acts 2, when God sends His Spirit to a room in Jerusalem and births the church, from Acts 2 for the rest of the rest of the New Testament, the church is the center of God's plan and down to the present day. And before the church was ever birthed, Jesus said of the church to come, He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They will not be able to, to stand against the power of Christ's church, because Christ uses 
his church. It's his body, his bride, his people, his kingdom. Christ is coming for his church. In a couple of chapters in Ephesians 5, we see that Christ died for his church. Those people in the church particularly, they loves his church. It's so important to him. Now, we see the centrality of the church throughout the New Testament, throughout the book of Ephesians. Let me just give you a little bit of personal story. I, I was, uh, became a Christian between high school and college, and I was, went to Rice University, a secular school, sort of thinking pre-law. But during my first year of, of, of college, it became clear to me more and more as God changed my heart, and, and I knew that God called me to some kind of full-time vocational ministry. And I ended up going to Dallas Seminary School in Dallas. And, and during those four years there, I had to uh, seek the Lord about, well, what would happen after seminary? Would I perhaps go back to the same Christian organization that had nurtured me as a new Christian at Rice, a great organization? Or would I go into the church and uh, pastor a church or some other organization, ministry? And, and God leads people, pastors and Christian leaders in all kinds of ways. But for me, what God used in my life was as, as, as I read the New Testament, as I studied the Scriptures, the centrality, the repeated focus on the local church became unmistakable, and I felt God calling me to become a pastor in a local church. Not God's plan for everybody, but it was for me. So today we're going to look at, at God's perspective on His bride, the church, and therefore what our perspective should be. Now you see this either implicitly or at times explicitly throughout the book of Ephesians, maybe more than any other New Testament book. This is what he says. Now, beginning in verse 7, and he just mentioned in verse 6 the gospel, and he picks up on that in verse 7 when he says, of this gospel. Now, let me just be really clear. There's hardly a more important term in the New Testament than the word gospel. We're familiar with it in several ways. In fact, it's, it's used in a different sense of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the four Gospels, these stories about Jesus. And then it is used in a generic everyday sense referring to the message about Jesus. It literally means good news. Gospel is good news. But what is it good news about? And if I could summarize it, it'd be it's good news that God saves sinners. Now that's good news, isn't it? That God, the holy, sovereign, infinite God, saves sinners like us. God saves sinners. And if you'd elaborate a bit, you'd say God saves sinners through Jesus, His Son. He saves sinners through the death and the resurrection of Jesus by His grace when we put our trust in Him. That's the gospel. That is the message of the Bible. Now, Paul says, of this gospel, this good news about God saving sinners, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So, so my calling is to, to take this message of the gospel out, and that is a gift of God's grace. He doesn't look at this as a duty or as a burden, but as a privilege and as a, as a gift. You know, here at Wood's Edge, I have asked us all to, to, to seek the Lord and, and ask Him for, to give us, if I walk over too long, I'll go into the shadows, uh, to, to give us five names. And we put them in that basket over there, our top five, we call them. Maybe family members, maybe neighbors, maybe coworkers, and just five folks who may not know the, know the Lord yet, and, and, and we're praying for them. 
and, and to pray for them, to reach out to them, to, to love them, to serve them, to perhaps share Christ with them or invite them here or something. That is not a duty or a burden. It is a privilege. It's a privilege. It's the good news. Not bad news, good news. And he goes on, and he says of this good news, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. It says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, when he says the very least of all the saints, uh, I, I, you've got to ask the question, is, is he being kind of overly modest to make a point? Or did he really believe that he was the very least of all the saints? You know, both are possible. But you've got to remember that two other times he says something similar. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And you get the sense that Paul looked at himself this way because in the early church, before God rescued him and ambushed him by the gospel, Paul was the number one persecutor of the early church. In fact, he was breathing fire and smoke to put new Christians into jail or even have them executed like Stephen. And he was part of that. He was a murderer. He was he was a, a blasphemer. He, was, he hated Jesus Christ. And in the mercy of God, this man who did not deserve it, who was not seeking God, God appears to him on a road to Damascus and opens his blind eyes and gives life to his dead heart and rescues him for all eternity. And Paul says, you know, I'm the least of all the saints because he could not get over the amazing grace of God. He just, he never forgot who he was. He never forgot who he once was and now how God had rescued him. You know, church, some of us have been believers for 20, 30, 40 years, and it could be that, that, that that's become kind of a stale idea for us, and then we've kind of gotten over the grace of God. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. You, you may not have been a persecutor and a murderer like Paul was, but, but let me tell you this. Before Jesus Christ, you were spiritually dead in your sins, completely blind to all truth about God, and headed to a Christless eternity. And God rescued you. He rescued you by His mercy and grace. Never get over it. Never get over it. One reason why we celebrate communion every week is just because we want to pause and remember again the gospel that our Savior died for us and rescued us. We remember it again. You know, earlier I mentioned about uh, giving. If you haven't started, join us here. You know, there are a lot of reasons to give. You know, it's part of discipleship, many other things. But there's one basic reason to give. Gratitude for a Savior. It's gratitude. It's an act of worship. Never get over the grace of God. Paul didn't. He says, of this grace, you know, that came to me the the, the least of all the saints. He said, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Peter and others calling was to the Jewish people. He was, Paul was a Jew. But he said, I'm going, I'm called to go out to the non-Jews, the Gentiles around the Roman Empire. And he said, when he preaches Christ, when he 
tells people the good news of Christ. It is the unsearchable riches of Christ. You can't, you can't fathom them. You can't, you can't comprehend them. They're inscrutable, incalculable. They're in, incomparable. I mean, think about it. The gospel of this story, it is almost stranger than fiction to think that, that Jesus Christ, who for all eternity has been the eternal Son of God, or what we could call God the Son, that this sovereign creator and judge of the universe became a little baby at a point in time, a little Jewish baby. And the whole reason that he became a little Jewish baby is so he could grow up and die in your place, take the penalty of your sin, and bear your sin and pay for it. Not for people in general, but for you and me. And he did that. And the whole purpose of his life was to die on a bloody cross to pay for your sin. Now, he lived like no one has ever lived. He taught like no one has ever taught. People were astonished. He worked incredible miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He walked on the water. No one's been like Jesus. And then he dies on a cross. But the grave couldn't hold him. Just couldn't hold him. Because he's the source of all life in the universe. And on the third day, he just burst out of that grave, and he lives forever as the Lord of glory. He is the unsearchable Savior with unsearchable riches. And, and when you mention or when you seek to share the gospel of Christ, you're giving them riches, riches. Um, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. Maybe some of you have never received a Savior. Maybe some of you have felt that this is all about religion, all about, you know, good boys and bad boys and measuring up and being good enough. It is not. It is not. Nobody's good enough. It is a gift of God's mercy and grace. Receive that gift now. You never have. Receive it now. Okay. Preaching to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then he goes on. And says he, and he wants to, in verse 9, bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So God had this plan throughout the Old Testament for ages in the Old Testament. And it was a very simple plan, but it just wasn't revealed yet. And here was the plan that God's people would be not only his Jewish people, his chosen people, special people from Genesis 12, but he's going to fling the gates wide open and Jews and Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom, equal partners in the grace of God. And he's going to form one multinational, multilinguistic, multi-ethnic group who are serving him around the world. And that's what we are today. We're one of those bodies of Christ serving him, this great mystery that God brings all kinds of diverse people back to himself all together through the cross of Christ. Now, that is opening eyes that are blind. Acts 26, 18, Paul is talking to King Agrippa about his own testimony and story, and he said, this is God's calling for me to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Now, how good is that? Opening your eyes. So not only is this receiving the riches of God, this is opening your eyes to the truth of God. This is good news. This is good news. When you share the gospel, you are giving people the hope of, of spiritual sight and being able to see. It's a great gift. It's a great gift. Now, everything I've said up to this point has been prequel 
for the grand purpose of this little paragraph. Now he comes to the purpose behind preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, behind opening the eyes of the blind, and he, and he comes to verse 10 and says, so that, here's the purpose, so that, and he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, what is Paul saying here if he's not saying that through the church, flawed people who have been redeemed like you and I, it is a picture forever throughout the universe, especially to the rulers and authorities of the incredible, infinite, manifold wisdom of God. He is so good and so great. Now, unpacking that a bit, when he says, this is trumpeted throughout the universe to the rulers and authorities. Now, that is uh, for sure referring to angelic beings. And it could be that's referring both to the good angels and the evil angels, that is the demons. But he uses the same terms in, Roman, in Ephesians 6 to refer to the evil angels, the demons. And so most likely, earlier in the same book, Ephesians 3, he is talking about the demonic powers of hell. He says, they will look at God's redeemed people, regular folks, flawed folks, and how God works in their life and brings grace and brings them together, and that glorifies God. They see the greatness of God. They see the glory of God. Now, when he says what they specifically see is the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold is variously translated. One writer says this. That word means many colored. It was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament of the robe that Jacob gave to Joseph, that multicolored robe. So it's like saying the multicolored richness of God. That's what they're going to see. It's like a beautiful tapestry. So the multiracial, multilinguistic, multiethnic church United only by the gospel, only by the cross of Christ, that glorifies the Lord. That same writer goes on to say, its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society. And the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. That's one reason why we want more and more diversity at Wood's Edge. We thank God for the diversity we have. We thank God that, that uh, we're having a growing number of African Americans, growing number of Hispanics. We thank God that we've got 47 nations represented at Wood's Edge in one way or the other. But we wish we want so much more diversity because that glorifies God, the multicolored tapestry. John Stott wrote that, So then as the gospel spreads throughout the world, the new and variegated Christian community develops. It is as if the great drama is being enacted. History is the theater, the world is the stage, and the church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play, and he directs and produces it. Act by act, scene by scene, the story continues to unfold. The action on the planet is not going to happen in Washington, D.C. at the Oscars tonight, in the NBA championships, or any other place, but in God's people reaching out to advance the kingdom of God and reaching lost people for the gospel. That is the great drama of our life. And the actors in this great drama are believers who band together, love one another, live together to advance the kingdom of God. It is right at the heart of all that God is doing. Don't 
live your life and miss out on the real action of life. Don't sit on the sidelines. This is not the Super Bowl with 70,000 people and a billion watching what goes on. You're down on the field. What is your role in the field? What is your position? Be a player in the great drama of our day. Now, let me just say, um, a lot of church, a lot of uh, Christians, uh, church doesn't work for them. And there are various reasons, but, but <clears throat> near the top of the list is this. If you've got much self-righteousness at all, much of a hypocritical spirit, much of a critical spirit, church will not work for you. You know why, don't you? Because there are a bunch of sinners in the church. I mean, there are a bunch of people who really mess up, people like you and me. And so if you're looking for perfect people, the church won't work for you. You better just go right to heaven. But if you've got the grace of God that he's poured into your heart, that you can pour out to others and become a great big forgiver, then you got a chance. Because flawed people who love Jesus and God's at work in their life. Okay, we see either implicitly or explicitly throughout Ephesians, throughout the New Testament, the centrality of the church to God's, in God's heart. We see that when Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We see that Christ dies for the church. He loves the church, that the church is his body, his bride, his temple, his kingdom, his people. We see that when Paul was going around the empire, he wasn't going around the empire just trying to make uh, disciples, much less make converts, but rather he was trying to lead people to the gospel and then band them together in local churches of flawed people who loved and served him. That's what his life was all about. And that must become central to our lives as well, whatever the specific calling God has for us. You know, it's been said that the church, the Christians, are not like a bunch of marbles. Marbles, you know, kind of uh, when they're thrown together, they kind of collide and bounce off each other and go separate. We're not a bunch of marbles. We're a bunch of grapes. We cluster together even when it gets messy. We're a bunch of grapes. God's plan is to have a community of flawed people redeemed by Christ. No isolated, unchurched Christians in the New Testament. There aren't. Two things you cannot do alone, as I've said before. You can't be married alone. You can't be a Christian alone. Because God's plan is a body, a body that he loves. So, what are the implications of the centrality of the church in this passage and more? Well, certainly belong to a church, become part of a church. Get to know some of the people in the church, connect to the church. Don't just start to slip in and slip out, but... You know, find a group, a class, a serving team. You know, get to know some of those people. You're not going to know all the people, but get to know some of them. Show up weekly. You guys may know the demographics in the United States that uh, the average evangelical, that is Bible-believing Christian, goes to church about one uh, every, every two weeks. And that's just, you know, the, the way in the Bible is just kind of weekly. You show up. You know, if you're in town, you've already predecided. We're going to show up to worship God with His people. Another implication is simply pray for your church because we need to be praying for each other. I know for me, uh, there's a, a number of folks that I know are struggling with cancer or other grave illnesses that I pray for pretty much daily. Um, I pray for some marriages that I know about that are really challenged. 
I pray for some people that I know about who need jobs. And, and, and you know all those folks too. And we need to be praying for each other, especially if they're in your small group and you know them well. The leaders of your church, guys like me, we need your prayers because we lack wisdom. We need the grace of God. Pray that we as a church would be all that God would want us to be. Let us, moreover, help you find your place in the battle station, your position on the field, inside the walls, outside the walls, somewhere that you're serving to advance the kingdom. And then finally, let me urge you, whether or not it's this church or any other church, we speak well of Christ's church because it is the bride of Christ. And we can be in all kind of flavors, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. All kind of stripes and sizes, but we speak well of the church because that is Christ's church. That is Christ's bride. John Piper's pungent comment at the start may be reflected in a comment by another pastor, Bill Hybels, much more succinctly. When Bill Hybels said, there is nothing like the local church when it is working right, it is the hope of the world. Be part of the action. Stand with me, please. Now, friend, if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your day. This is your day. He died for you. He sent His Son to die for you. All you need to do is to receive the gift. Just breathe a prayer. Say thank you. That is how you become a Christian. It's not more complicated. There are not a bunch of religious rules to jump through. Simply put your trust in a Savior. Jesus, would you save me? And He'll do it. I'd urge you to do that right now. Lord God, thank you for your mercy and grace to the likes of us. Lord God, I pray that none of my brothers and sisters who are believers in Jesus Christ, that we would miss out on what life is all about, banding together in these local communities, churches, to advance the kingdom of God. Give us grace. Give us grace. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.